All right, let's get into the word today, Exodus chapter 34. Starting with verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were spoken on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. So no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all of the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on, on the mount, on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed in the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your, in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity, and take us for your inheritance. As the chapter goes on, God then renews the covenant with Abram, and he again gives the same stipulations that were given some chapters before prior to the covenant being broken. He repeats the, uh, the promise that he will go before them and that they will receive the land. As he's repeating these stipulations, you might notice in verse 17 right there, he, he sort of explains one. He says, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. It's almost as if He's giving a commentary on the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. And by the way, remember the golden calf? Don't do that again. All right? <laughs> Let me just make it very clear for you. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Sabbath day, repeated there. He renews the covenant. And I, lo I love how it, the chapter ends. Look at verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with them in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, 
And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we do come into your inerrant, inspired word this morning. This is our one foundation. You have spoken to us clearly in your word. God, I ask that you make it clear to us this morning. Reveal your heart so that we might know ours. God, cleanse our hearts so that we might know yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How can a rebel be forgiven? I once had a young man confess to me some grievous sin. And he looked at me and he said, Joel, I'm a Christian. I should know better. I've known God's grace. And I have still fallen in this way. Like if I had committed this sin prior to becoming a Christian, it would make more sense. But I've committed this sin as a Christian. How can God forgive me? The reason I use the word rebel there in my opening question for you is because a rebel is someone who is actually under authority rebelling against that authority. A rebel knows there's authority. They're not blind to it. And a rebel knows that they're rebelling against the authority. Their eyes have been opened. How can a rebel, us, someone who's seen the grace of Christ, we've come into this faith, we've experienced the kindness of a Savior, and we rebel against Him over and over and over. How can God still forgive us? We'll put this in context here today, Israel, but remember they were in slavery. Think of what God did for them. Egypt had dehumanized Israel. Egypt had devalued Israel. And Egypt had nearly destroyed Israel. God comes in out of His pure grace for these people, delivers them from slavery, and humanizes them. God values them. And God restores them. Now what we see here, what we've seen already in the last couple chapters, is that while Israel is freed from the physical slavery, there is another kind of slavery that they know nothing of. There's a deeper slavery that they can't seem to shake. It's a spiritual slavery. J.W. von Goethe says that there are none more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they are free. You see, the spiritual slavery is a slavery that we don't even know we're in. Shackles that we can't feel And there is none more hopeless than one who is in bondage and they think that they're free. This is the true horror of spiritual slavery. And we rebel thinking that we are free. 
Have you ever been hurt by someone? Just answer that question. Okay. Thank you. Have you ever been hurt by someone so, so badly that when they finally come to you and they say, I'm sorry, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard? Because you know what you're supposed to say next, right? <laughs> you hear the words, I'm sorry. And you think, I didn't want to hear that. I want to be angry with this person. Saying I forgive you is like kissing my sister. All right? It's just going to be a painful moment. We know how painful it is sometimes to say I forgive you. Now, we also know this. Let's flip this around. Imagine there's a husband who committed adultery against his wife. And for years, he, he pleads with her, would you, would, you, would you forgive me? Would you please forgive me? And she's, she just can't. And she's angry with him, and she's bitter with him. And then finally, finally, she comes around, and her eyes are open to forgiveness, and she freely, willingly, and passionately forgives him. You can only imagine his delight, correct? We know two things. We know, one, as human beings, how hard it is to forgive. And secondly, we know how beautiful it is when we are forgiven. As we come into this passage, if it's hard for us to forgive a holy God, a God who has done all of this for this people and they just rebel against Him like that? A God who has done all of this for you and you just turn your back on Him in, in, a, in a moment? How can God freely, quickly, so willingly forgive rebels? And how delightful it would be for us if we can come into this passage today and then come out of it knowing that we are forgiven. If you remember the story, Moses comes down from the mountain. They're rebelling against God, golden calf, etc. Moses smashes the, the stones to represent the fact that the covenant is destroyed. The covenant has been broken. Now in this chapter, God calls Moses to come back up. This isn't just simply a renewal of the covenant. This is making the covenant all over again. God says, cut out some fresh stones. And I can only imagine Moses with the delight of restoration, the delight of knowing that God is turning his face back toward him. Maybe tears drying on his face, his hands shaking as he cuts out and then carries the stones back up onto the mountain to be on the mountain for another 40 days with God as God remakes the covenant with Moses and through Moses with his people. I've given my sermon a new title today, not that any of you care or even look at the bulletin to see what my title is. It was called Something About Covenant Renewal. But the more I've studied, the more I've just gotten into this passage, I've changed it to good news for rebels. That's really the, the, it's the emphasis of this chapter. Good news. This is good news for rebels. If you are a rebel this morning, I have good news for you. And here's the thing. It is not based on your character, but it's based on God's character. All we see in this chapter, and this is all we're going to do today, is we're going to look at how God reveals himself. We're going to look at God's own character, and we're going to understand that God forgives rebels not because of who the rebel is, but simply because of God's own 
character. Let me show you a couple aspects of God's character that we see right here in verse 6. The Lord passes before Moses and he proclaims this massive proclamation. The Lord himself saying, this is who I am. This is my character. This is the foundation upon which I am renewing this, remaking this covenant with you, forgiving you. He says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on, on, on the fathers, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Four aspects of God's character that we see right here. Number one, God is merciful. How can God forgive rebels? Let's begin with this. God says right here that He is merciful. Four men were dividing up the assets of a business. Three of the men were professing Christians. One of them was not. The one who was not a Christian wanted a larger portion of the business than the other three. They thought about this. The one who wanted a larger portion said, I'm going to take you into a lawsuit. I'm going to sue you, and I'm going to get what I demand. The other three held out, and they said, this is not fair. We are not going to give him what he demands. And so they were preparing for a number of weeks for a major and expensive lawsuit. They got counsel from a, from a Christian counselor. The counselor asked the three men, why don't you just give him what he demands? When you, when you consider all that it's going to cost you, the lawsuit, the money, why don't you just give him the extra money that he demands? This was their response. They said this, it's just the principle of the matter. They said it's not about the money. It's just the principle of the matter. Do you know how many people are angry with someone else? Not because of the money. It's just the principle of the matter. It's just because of what they did to me and they must pay. I must give them what they deserve. And I'll take them to, to the lawsuit. I'll take them to, the, to court. Man, it is a good thing that God doesn't treat us like that, doesn't, isn't it? What if God knowing all that you know about yourself, was a it's just the principle of the matter kind of God. Mercy and grace we see here as God reveals Himself. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. And you say, well, that's just my problem with God. He doesn't give me what I deserve. What do you deserve? <laughs> Let's think about this for just a moment. What, what do you deserve? What does the Bible say that you deserve? Look at verse 7. Before, before we read verse 7, let me just quickly say this. John Piper once said that there are 
two kinds of people that are extremely hard to counsel. One is the kind of person who doesn't believe that they can be forgiven. All right, If that's you, that's who I'm talking to this morning. Secondly is the kind of person who just simply assumes God's forgiveness. They just simply assume it. They act however they want to act. They go about their life however they want to go about, and they just assume that God is good with them. With that in mind, look at verse 7. The last portion, it says that God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? There are some who will tell you that this is referring to generational curses. That if you sin, God will hold it against your kids and their kids and their kids. Or maybe you're dealing with junk today because of something your great-grandpappy did. No, that's not what it means. There's no such thing as generational curses in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, in the book of uh, uh, Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 20, it clearly says the child will not share in the guilt of the parent. So the guilt of the parent is not imputed, per se, to the child in the sense that they are going to pay the punishment. So what does this mean? Here's the point that I'm chasing after right now. What God is getting at here is a kind of person who doesn't believe that their life of rebellion in any way will affect their children. Here's what I know as a father. My kids are much quicker to pick up on my sins than they are to pick up on the good things that I do. Your kids, if you have kids or if you one day will, are going to be much quicker to pick up on your unrepentant sins and repeat them. And what he's saying is this, don't think that if you pay for your own sins that I won't make them pay for theirs. We cannot live a life of unrepentance and just assume that God is good with us and that our, the next generation will just be fine. But what he's saying is, is that they will be held accountable for the same kind of sins that you're committing today. What do we deserve? What do we deserve? What does the Scripture say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. We deserve death. We deserve hell. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. When we consider the world that we live in, we have to recognize that we live in a constant state of mercy. Last year was the highest murder rate for Baltimore City. Continued police, police brutality in this country. Racism that continues. Over a million abortions most likely will happen this year in this country. Constant backbiting, gossip, self-righteousness, pride, greed. Friends, we live in a constant state of God's mercy. If we did not live in a constant state of God's mercy, none of us would be here right now. 
We are constantly depending on the mercy of God. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, it's as if all of us are just dangling by a thin thread over the the fires of hell and God is holding the top of that thread. Meaning if God for just a moment decided to give up His mercy on us and, and, and break the thread, we would have no hope. We are completely dependent on God's mercy. I am so thankful that I worship and serve a God who does not treat me in the way that I deserve. I hope that you're thankful that you worship a God who doesn't treat you in the way that you deserve. A God who doesn't say, well, it's just the principle of the thing. You get it. You deserve it. You get what's coming to you. Look, in our church, we can have disagreements with each other. We can even have godly arguments with each other. But we will not treat each other as we deserve. We will not hold bitterness and hatred in our hearts toward one another. We will not just give it to somebody just simply because they asked for it. No. We will not be petty. We will not participate in this drama. Because we are a people who have been given mercy. Friends, if we lived in this kind of reality, marriages would be restored like this. Broken friendships and relationships in this church would immediately be restored. God is a God of mercy. Going on, moving on. Secondly, we see God is a God of graciousness. God is gracious. Charles Spurgeon, many of you know he's my hero, and and, uh, sometimes you just have to tell stories about your hero to let everybody know that they too were sinners, all right? Charles Spurgeon was a pastor alongside another minister named Joseph Parker. This is in 19th century London when street kids were dying in the alleys. Charles Spurgeon had built an orphanage to house street kids. Charles Par- or, uh, Joseph Parker, another minister in the city, he commented once on the poor condition of the kids that are entering into Charles Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's orphanage. Spurgeon, uh, was rep- uh, it was, this was reported to Spurgeon, but it was twisted. It was reported to Spurgeon that Parker didn't say, oh, look how poor the condition is of the kids. But Parker had said, oh, look how poor the condition is of the orphanage. This made Spurgeon angry. So Spurgeon, instead of going to Parker, did the wrong thing. And he stood up that Sunday morning in his pulpit and he blasted Joseph Parker for the way that he was so negative about the orphanage. It made it into the papers and it was the talk of London. Many people, of course, then filled Joseph Parker's church that next Sunday morning to hear Parker's response to Spurgeon. Parker's response was this. He said, I understand that Mr. Spurgeon is not filling his pulpit this morning. And I know that this is a day that they used to take an offering for the orphanage. And so I say, let us take an offering this morning. A love offering for Spurgeon's orphanage. And the people were delighted 
and the ushers had to go through three times, emptying the plates, going back for more. There were so many people that gave so much money that day for the orphanage. That week, Spurgeon knocked on Parker's door, and Spurgeon said, you know, Parker, you have shown me grace. You did not give me what I deserve, but you gave me what I needed. If mercy is not giving someone what they deserve, grace is pouring on somebody what they don't deserve. It's giving someone something that they just shouldn't have. God is a God of grace, treating us better than we deserve. And we need grace. I was once asked to come to the bedside of a 12-year-old who was dying of cancer. I was there a number of times with her, and the last time I visited, I knew it was going to be the last time. Uh, She only had a few days left. And I worked up enough courage to just boldly in front of her family members, share the gospel with her, and call her to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So while people listened awkwardly, I did just that. And when I was finished and I asked her what her response was, her aunt interrupted me and said, Honey, you don't need grace. You're good. Does a 12-year-old need grace? Absolutely. And the 12-year-old knew it. She completely ignored her aunt. And she looked at me and said, I want to be saved. Kids get it. We need grace. We need God to shower us in his grace, and he does. I mean, there's such a thing as common grace. The, the ability to have friendships with one another, the ability to use our hands uh, to, to, to make money and to produce things. Some of us have experienced wonderful grace in, maybe in our marriage or in our singleness and the ability to live a godly single life or in the ability to love a friend in a way that we otherwise could not. But friends, there is this specific grace of the forgiveness of sins that is the greatest grace of all. God gives us what we don't deserve, gives Israel what they did not deserve, and that is forgiveness. We we see thirdly here that God is merciful, gracious, and third, slow to anger. God is slow to anger. What does that mean? An old friend of mine who used to argue with his wife a lot, he used to say, I have a long fuse. And, but, and, and once, once that fuse is, is gone, I have a big bomb. <laughs> it goes off. Is that what this is saying about God? God is slow to anger, meaning he has a long fuse, but you just wait. And when that explodes, it's a big explosion. Is that what he's saying? No. Why? Because God is not like us. He's not like us. Our anger is almost always sinful. Not always. But so often our anger, I can only speak for myself, is sinful. God's anger is never sinful. It's always only righteous and only good. Slow to anger simply means that God is a patient God. And we see this throughout the Scriptures as in the days of Noah. Over a hundred years of warning for the people before the floods come, God was so patient. 
with the Canaanites before Israel was sent into the land. God was patient for 400 years with the Canaanites. And with us today, God is so patient with us. For 2,000 years of of, of life, this world is continuing to, to move forward and progress in various ways. And God is still continuing to be patient. Lavishing the world in so much common grace. He's patient with us. Think of it, for, for a thousand years, the Gospel had all, been all but lost from around 5600 A.D. to 1500 A.D. The Gospel was like not preached in any church or very few churches. For a thousand years, how patient was God with His people? 400 years of transatlantic slave trade. How patient God has been with those of us from European descent. It's just a wonder that any of us white folks are even here today. God is so patient with, with us. He is so patient with sinners. People who commit such atrocities. People who rebel against Him. He is slow to anger. Now we could think back and we could think of our life prior to Christ. How we had hundreds of excuses. Reasons that we would not follow Him. Then finally we come to come to know Him, but then even after conversion, into this new Christian life, how often we rebel, how often we forget Him and run from Him and fall into self-righteousness and into pride. Guys, this golden calf experience happened after the deliverance. And so many of our own failings happen after our own deliverance. How patient God is with His children who continue to, to rebel against Him. Fourthly, we see that God is abounding. It says, in steadfast love and faithfulness. We love the story of the prodigal son. Why? Because it's a, sto- it's a story of love. The son who takes the father's wealth and, and he leaves his father's house and he goes out and he squanders it. He wastes it in sinful pleasures, in using his money to get friends. Pretty soon it's all gone. And he's sitting there eating the food of the swine. He is so hungry. And he thinks to himself, it would be better to be a servant back in my dad's house than sitting here eating pig food. And so he goes back to his dad's house, fully expecting his dad to take him and throw him into the room with the servants. Here he comes up the road, and there is his father. You know the story, right? What does his father do? He welcomes him. He runs to him. He embraces him. He brings him in. He gives him what? He gives him a party, right? They, they kill the fattest calf. They eat it. They celebrate. His older brother's having a hissy fit. That's a whole other story for another time. 
Why do we love that story? It's, it's a story of love. It's a story of steadfast love. We are changed not by God just telling us what to do. We're changed by God's love. We're not changed by His law. We're changed by His faithfulness to us. The word love here is the word chesed in the Hebrew. It's a word that that refers to the covenantal kind of love. It's not just a love that is a feeling, but it's a familial kind of love. It's a covenantal love. It's it's the kind of love that, that a married couple ought to have for each other. The kind of love that will not part. A committed love. God loved God loved Noah with that kind of love. He loved Abram with that kind of love. Joseph with that kind of love. He loved Moses with that kind of love. This kind of love was given then completely by His grace to the people of Israel. It was exemplified in the story of Hosea as Hosea loves his wife with that kind of chasing love. And it is then amplified in Jesus Christ who loved us. Jesus Christ loved us to the degree that He created in His own blood a new covenant that cannot be broken. A new covenant that cannot be broken by our rebellion because Jesus did it all. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sins and brought into this kind of love, brought into this covenant so that we might have reunion and relationship with God. A steadfast love. And faithfulness. I just wrap faithfulness right into that. Because this kind of love is indeed a faithful love. Even when the prodigal was unfaithful to his father, his father was faithful to him. And friends, every time that you are unfaithful to God, think of it. Just, uh, just think of your life for just a moment. How many times on an average day are you unfaithful to God? Do you turn your heart against God? Do you, does your mind wander to other gods? God is always faithful to you. God, listen, is never distracted. He's always loving you with this kind of love. As we wrap up, we see here that as a result, he goes on. He keeps, keeps this love for thousands. He says he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. How does he do it? It's not because of who Israel is, but it's because of God's own character. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 says, I will forgive every sin and every blasphemy. The worst of sinners can be forgiven. All who turn to Christ and call on His name can be forgiven. Are you apart from God now? Do you feel the sense of guilt? The sense of weight? Do you feel a need for reconciliation? Are you a rebel against a holy God? 
Turn to Him now. Tell Him, oh, I, I, I can't live without You. I need Your mercy. I can't go without Your mercy. And friends, I will tell you that God has showered you in His grace. He will bring you near to Him. He will reconcile Himself to you. Look at Moses' response in verse 8. Moses quickly, it said, bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. When we come into an understanding of who God is, when we get a glimpse of God's character, when we begin to understand God's faithfulness to us, it leads us to worship Him. That's actually the appropriate response. We worship Him. Like I said, I love how the chapter ends as Moses comes down the mountain and his skin is glowing. He doesn't even know it. They have to put a veil over his face because he's freaking them out. It's just a glimpse into the glory of God. We can't come into the presence of God and be confronted with who he is and his own character and worship him and not be changed at our core. Our faces might not physically glow, but we are changed at our core when we encounter this God. And one day, our faces will glow. One day, we will be so overwhelmed with His grace, mercy, love, and faithfulness as God remakes us. And we will shine with His glory. I look forward to seeing you with that beauty. And when you, I see you with that beauty and you see me shining with that beauty, do you know who you will give glory to? It won't be me. Because we will merely be reflecting the glory of heaven. The glory of God. Let's worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the story of Exodus and the, the renewing, reconciling, forgiving aspect of your character for showing us that we as rebels can be redeemed and forgiven. I pray that any here who is not trusting Jesus as their Savior, turning from their sins, would do so before they leave that you would renew us and restore us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.